Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, The Songs of Ascent. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Psalm 129 is one of those psalms uh, that is a little difficult for me to imagine uh, the pilgrims singing as they would work their way up to Jerusalem, especially the second half of the psalm. Uh, But once we dive in and, and understand the psalm better, I think that it will make a lot more sense and will summarize Uh, what we understand in terms of God's justice. Well, today we'll look at Psalm 129. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When Israel fled Egypt and they approached the Red Sea, you may recall that Pharaoh and his army were in hot pursuit. In that moment of distress, slavery sounded more appealing to the former slaves of Egypt than freedom. We know this because in their anger, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? (laughs) You see, in the day of trouble, redemption can feel like anything but deliverance. But Moses Moses steadied the people. And then Moses commanded the people. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord. Which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today. You shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And they did. And he did. And we know the rest of the story. God released the walled up walls of water. They came crashing down upon Pharaoh on, and his army. 
And Scripture says, not even one of them remained. And in that moment, I try to put myself there, in that moment, I might have thought, I pity the fool who tries to mess with my people and me. In that moment, having witnessed that miracle, I think, wow, is this what it's going to be like from here on out? No one will mess with us. I mean, who would mess with people whose deliverance had resulted in the defeat of Egypt and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army? Well, you readers of your Bibles know, apparently plenty. I mean, starting with the Amalekites, almost right out of the gate, right? Those descendants of Esau waged war upon Israel. You see, the church of God has been and is hated for our God and our Redeemer. Jesus said to His disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so the psalmist in our psalm today leads the congregation in lamentation, singing this, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. This is the song of a persecuted yet persevering people. That's the song of a persecuted yet persevering people. And so I want to start here with those who are persecuted for our faith. Serving as the cantor, and we certainly see this in this psalm, don't we? One who leads the congregation in song. Serving as the cantor, the psalmist sings... Well, he's singing of lifelong affliction. (laughs) Who sings about that, right? Well, Israel does. The congregation responds, they respond as one. And in this, we see the me of this psalm becomes we who have been persecuted for the Lord's sake. The they of this psalm who afflict me Well, that runs the gamut of everyone who hates Zion. A hatred that began in Israel's youth and carries on to all of Abraham's offspring, even to us this very day. The affliction is as varied as our enemies, but the psalmist highlights the physical suffering of the saints. Look at verse 3 with me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now though the psalmist is delivering this to us in the metaphor of agriculture, there is no gratitude here for the grace of sunshine and rain. Only violence. Violence inflicted upon the chosen people of God. Deep runs the plows. Deep runs the furrow 
of hatred. A hatred was a hatred as old as Cain's hatred for Abel, who simply sought to worship the Lord rightly. Imagine that. Cain killed his brother for simply wanting, desiring, and faithfully seeking to worship the Lord rightly. Not much has changed. It should not surprise us then that he who came that we might rightly worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, he was afflicted too. Upon his back were the furrows of Pontius Pilate's whip, a plowing precursor to the cross. Having scourged him, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold the man! And many did. In mockery. But the Apostle John confesses this. And we beheld his glory. And the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. For you see neither Pilate nor death could prevail against him. Nor those who abide in him. Having beheld his glory in life and death. And resurrection, the apostles counted everything but loss for the sake of Christ. As the apostle Paul confesses, listen closely, Philippians chapter 3, For his sake I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Luke records evidence of this same sentiment when the Sanhedrin summoned the apostles. And it says that the Sanhedrin had the apostles beaten, ordering them to stop preaching the gospel. The Jewish leaders plowed their long furrows, so to speak, in the backs of the apostles because of their hatred. Scripture says because of their hatred for the name of Jesus. But the plowing did not stop their preaching. In fact, after their flogging, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor in the name of Jesus. They knew that affliction is momentary, but life in Christ is forever. I'm reminded, I'm just finishing, in fact, just finished uh, an autobiographical novel uh, by a a novelist named Daniel Nayeri, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, uh, titled All All Truth, let's see, All Sad Things Are Are Untrue. Probably should have this in my notes, shouldn't we? Or All That Is Sad Is Untrue, I think it's called. And in that, and I'm not going to give away the story, so don't worry, but read the book. It's written from the viewpoint of a young boy who is an Iranian immigrant in the 1990s. And they fled Iran 
because of persecution. And he tells stories of his mom, along with other little boy humor, you know, like classroom and poop and stuff like this. And, and in all of this, he tells the story of his mother who heard the gospel and believed. A woman who had a PhD and an MD who walked away for the sake of Christ from her medical profession, who walked away from a husband who would not believe with her, who fled with her children because the Iranian religious police sought to kill her. And in one scene, he says, before they had to flee, he said, my mom had a little cross that she had hanging from her rearview mirror. And one day there was a note put on her windshield. It says, get rid of that symbol of Christianity or we will kill you. And the boy says, well, my mom took the cross down and got a bigger one. <laughs> you see, I think in many ways we have no idea really, of what our persecuted brothers and sisters go through. But in just a glimpse, in just a glimpse of that, we can see that Christ is greater than anything we encounter. Whether emotional persecution, persecution in the workplace, or even in this case, as the psalmist talks about, the physical persecution. Nothing compares to Christ. Everything else is rubbish. And so until the last day, persecution will continue in varied ways and in varied places. But we do not live without hope. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cord of the wicked. And so let's look at how we are preserved by God. Continuing with his agricultural metaphor, the psalmist paints the picture of an ox in harness. An ox that is plowing the furrows of affliction upon the children of God. But persecution, Scripture says, will not prevail. The Lord has cut the cord, has cut the harness of that beast of burden. I mean, we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Of course, this side of heaven, the cynic in me wants to say, actually a lot. Man can do quite a bit to me. Can persecute me. But Jesus said, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Think about that. What can man do to me? Can, can, can they take away Christ from me? Can they steal the eternal inheritance that he has given me? Can they revoke our calling? Can they rob my gifts that God has given to me? What Paul says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Can someone lead us to sin a sin that would negate God's sovereign election and negate Christ's atonement? Well, Jude says 
that the Lord is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Can anything in this earth, can there be anything in heaven that can separate me and you from the love of Christ? Well, Paul says that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, though we are afflicted for Christ's sake, we do not fear those who persecute us. Why? Because we know the Lord cuts the cord of the wicked. And this, of course, requires that you and I must look beyond our light momentary affliction. Not my words, the Apostle Paul's. He calls our affliction in this light light and momentary. Our light momentary affliction. And where does he tell us to look? Well, in first in Second Corinthians, he says. Knowing that this life is simply preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, we are indeed preserved by God. And we are being prepared for glory. And knowing this, knowing this, we leave the vengeance to the Lord. For he who is righteous, he who is righteous will judge both the living and the dead. And so, how do we respond to the persecution? We pray. We pray for justice. Now, to be clear, I'm going to tell you something that you already know. We live in an age that is really confused about justice. (laughs) Which makes interpreting this psalm that much harder. The psalmist says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Or as one translator renders it, Let all those who hate Zion grovel in humiliation. And to modern ears, this sounds like a vengeful vendetta, far more than a prayerful petition. But the truth is every one of us desires justice. Think about it this way. Every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God. We all share some of his attributes, albeit imperfectly, and we refer to those theologically as his communicable attributes. And this helps us understand stand, then why, if we share in the communicable attribute of justice, why we are bothered. In fact, we're even outraged when we see people getting away with bad behavior. Our sense of justice is troubled when we see someone not getting the punishment they deserve. Or we are glad when we see someone who gets what they had coming. Right? I'm reminded a friend of mine tells the story of a man who had gotten on the airplane and there was a crying baby. 
and next to this, actually in front of this man, and the baby is upset, and this man is just rude and crude, and you can tell that that crying baby is really upsetting him. And so he makes all sign of a commotion and everything, gets upset, and everybody's on pins and needles. You know these people, right? It says that the plane goes up in the air, and just about the time they're about to level off, that baby crawls up over the seat, maybe a bit motion sickness, and just, and releases it all on this man. And then a guy says, as everybody in the plane starts clapping. <laughs> well, why? That's that innate sense of justice. We're like, ah, yes, baby vomit. Justice is served. <laughs> But as justice is from God, it should not surprise us then when our flesh should seek to manipulate this godly attribute selfishly. Our sense of justice is never more incensed than when we are personally wronged. Or when something that we are really passionate about is defiled. Often Christians and non-Christians alike, cry for justice only when it carries the cultural cachet of their cause. Such is the social justice of our day. But here's what I don't often hear. What I don't often hear are prayers that God would act in His perfect justice for the sake of His righteousness. I'm not hearing that in the whole justice dialogue of our day. That God would act in His perfect justice for the sake of His perfect righteousness. We get a glimpse of this in David's prayer. That adulterer, you know, that murderer, you know, that covenant king of Israel, you know, who prayed against you, you only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knew that he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. He's not denying that, but that's secondary. What's primary? First and foremost, he had sinned against the holy and just God. And this overwhelmed him. Oh, that God would overwhelm us with this same sense of justice. Because when He does, and when we see it for the sake of God's righteousness, then the psalm makes much more sense. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up. Now think about this as a prayer. And the rest of the psalm, incidentally, is just an elaboration on this beginning prayer. An explanation, so to speak, of what he is praying. And so we should ask, for whom and for what is the psalmist praying? First, he is praying for all who hate Zion. And this is a comprehensive request, right? All. This is a specific request, all who hate. This is a definitive request, all who hate Zion. But why Zion? Because Zion is the chosen place 
of the Lord's presence. Zion is the chosen place of God's worship. And so to hate Zion is to reject the Lord. To hate who He is. And if you hate who He is, then you hate those who worship Him. Second, the psalmist is praying indirectly for the persecuted. For Israel. For the church who loves the Lord and worships Him. And in praying for the persecuted, he is praying for justice. He is praying that God will put to shame those who reject him. Him being the Lord, not the psalmist. He is praying that they will be turned away, presumably from their persecution of the Lord's people. Specifically because they are persecuting the Lord's people. And then, by way of I might add lengthy analogy, he is praying that they will not prosper, that they will not be praised in what they do. Soil that is gathered on a rooftop, you see, is quite shallow. You're not going to grow the greatest hay harvest on the top of a house. You will not bale and bundle hay Nor will anyone walk along and say, Wow, the hay that you produced on the top of your house, that's amazing. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, for the hay that you have baled and bundled. Nobody says that. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying that we're praying that those who hate Zion will not prosper, will not be praised for the sake of of the Lord's righteousness. And though this analogy seems odd, the sentiment is actually not odd. In fact, we're quite familiar with it. Think about it this way. We pray every Sunday, we pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, in which our shorter catechism says we pray in this that God would enable us and others to glorify Him in all that whereby He maketh Himself known, and that He would dispose all things to His glory. And then we pray, Thy kingdom come, in which we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. And in the simple petitions of the Lord's Prayer that we are so familiar with, we are, in a sense, joining with the psalmist in praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this includes His perfect justice. But until earth is heaven, until earth is heaven, there will continue to be persecution. Injustice will prevail in this present darkness until there is no more darkness. Until the only light is our eternal God. Until that day, We do not lose hope, obsessing on the injustices of this world. But we look to the greatest display of justice in the world. The greatest display of justice in the world is the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ, the Lord 
who is righteous gives us His righteousness by faith. We are, Paul says, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so in Christ, we as His people, we persevere, remembering that we have received the righteousness of God by His grace alone, and that same grace sustains us day by day. Yes, we need reminding. That's why we're in God's Word. That's why we're under the preaching of God's Word. Yes, we need to remember that the cross of Christ is the perfect and the greatest picture of divine justice. And we too learn to pray for those who persecute us. Knowing the righteous judge has justified us as righteous in Christ alone and His gospel is freely offered to all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we remember today our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted across the world for the sake of Christ. It seems simple cultural persecution that we may encounter today it seems so trivial and yet lord you sustain them you sustain us and all of this for your glory and so we pray for ourselves and we pray for our brothers and sisters in christ that you would remind us of the gospel of jesus christ remind us that you are indeed the giver of all good things and that greatest gift being Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.